On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Pretty varied front pages today and the Sunday papers as well, starting with the Business Post this morning. Government U turn puts 80% of offshore wind projects at risk, is the headline there. Uh, more than 80% of the offshore wind projects in the planning pipeline are at risk following a government policy U turn that has left developers angry and frustrated, the Business Post has learned. The move has been described as a major shock by industry sources who claim that it seriously threatens the government's own targets to increase offshore wind capacity by 2030. The government has set a target of 5,000 megawatts of offshore wind capacity to be installed by 2030 as part of its energy security and climate plans and it has described increasing wind energy in Ireland as a key policy. Taoiseach Rila Varadkar says the future is offshore and Eamon Ryan says these projects are key to decarbonising our future but industry sources say that a recent policy change will damage efforts to secure investment in the sector. This U-turn apparently came to light when the officials from officials from the Department of en- uh, Energy and the Environment uh, told a recent industry conference that developers would no longer be able to choose their own sites for offshore projects. Instead, the be a centralised scheme confined to two sites one off the south coast and one off the southeast coast. Industry sources said that that last minute change puts the pipeline of more than 50 projects at risk. Those projects together would have a combined capacity of 80,000 megawatts of energy. So that's the front page of the Business Post. Also, by the way, uh, on the Business Post, the ESB is set to expand legal action against employees over allegations that some staff sought corrupt payments from developers in order to expedite electrical work. Uh, and Paul Clinton, the well-known pub owner, says that he owns two of the three 50% of the Harry Lemon pub in uh, South Dublin City Centre and has gone to the High Court to clarify matters. There's a dispute over the ownership uh, of that bar. Uh, the front page of the Sunday Independent. The convicted fraudster Katrina Carey transferred thousands of euro to a bank account in the name of her brother, the Kilkenny hurling great DJ Carey, from a business account which is currently under investigation by Gardaí in connection with an alleged mortgage scam. The Sunday Independent can reveal how two payments were made from the Carey'sport assets estates account in 2020. On February the 25th, a sum of €2,000 was transferred to an account in the name of DJ Carey, uh, while a further 2000 was sent to an account called DJ Carey AIB on March the 4th. The first payment appears to have bounced back. Uh, last week, Miss Carey was arrested by officers from the Corporate Enforcement Authority and she was questioned over her role as a director of the UK-registered company Carey's Fort. She was released without charge after more than 12 hours of questioning, where she was probed over allegations of fraudulent trading, false accounting and breaches of company law. The investigation is separate from an inquiry by the Garda National Economic Crime Bureau. And also on the front page of the Sunday Independent, the government is to prioritise reform of defamation law this year in part as a result of Sinn Féin's chilling legal strategy to silence media and opponents according to senior government sources. Uh, the Sunday Independent can reveal Taoiseach Leo Varadkar has asked the Acting Justice Minister Simon Harris to fast-track proposed reforms. Also yesterday, the Fine Gael TD Fergus O'Dowd says Sinn Féin needs to come clean regarding the number of legal cases it has taken against media organisations and public figures and disclose what it has done with any financial awards. Um, I will just take a little interlude for just one second and say that um, members of the media, including myself and different organisations that I've worked for, have been calling for reforms to defamation laws for quite a long time and better late than never and it would be really good to see reforms of defamation laws to ensure that the media coverage in this country can be as robust and as fair as it ought to be in certain subjects. But the idea that it would be expedited after years and years and years of looking for it simply because uh, the government now wants to get to the bottom of what Sinn Féin is doing by means of legal threats. Um, I find it quite hard to stomach, to be honest. Uh, I would rather that they just had reformed the law for the sake of reforming the law, not to stymie what their political opponents are doing. Um, Anyway, we'll move on. 
the front page of the Mail on Sunday, another story about um, dif- difficulties uh, disclosed by the health whistleblower Shane Corr. Uh, front page story today, Health Minister Stephen Donnelly being accused of political cowardice after he refused to respond to widespread calls from government and opposition TDs to amend defective legislation that illegally prevents anyone over 16 with a mental illness from accessing free medication. Donnelly is also coming under intense pressure to correct the dull record after 14 TDs were misled by his department, says the paper, over the issue since it became known. The minister has refused to respond to calls from several of those TDs, including two former ministers, to correct the dull record and to amend the flawed legislation. That harks back to the story that you would have heard us talk about on the programme last Sunday morning. Uh, and finally for now, uh, two interesting stories to uh, to finish up on. Uh, the front page of the Sunday Times. Uh, firstly, there is no evidence that the former GAA star who claimed to have cancer as part of an alleged fraud and deception plot has ever been diagnosed with the disease. That's according to security sources talking to the Sunday Times. Uh, but the main story there, we might make this our, our jumping off point. Russian agent worked as an aide in the Doyle, says the headline. Uh, an Irish citizen accused of being a threat to national security in Australia had previously worked in the Dáil and befriended Irish politicians. Marina Sologub, 39, a Kazakhstan-born ethnic Russian who grew up in Cork, was declared a potential threat to national security last week by the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation. <coughs> Excuse me. The Domestic Intelligence Agency in Australia says that she potentially posed a direct or indirect threat to Australia's national security and they've ordered her to leave the country, rescinding a special work visa. She moved to Adelaide on a distinguished talent visa to work in the Australian space industry in February 2020, having previously worked at the National Space Centre in Cork. According to one report in Australia, she worked for consulting firm Deloitte before moving to a space company and then finally to the local authority in the city of Marion, which terminated her contract of employment when the intelligence services moved against her. Uh, It is unclear whether she's already been deported uh, from Australia. She moved to Ireland in her early teens, grew up in Glanmire, attended UCC, studied politics and governance before she sought work at the constituency offices of TDs. Her CV states that she worked for Bernard Allen, a former Fine Gael TD who was once upon a time the chair of the Public Accounts Committee, and also that she ran the constituency office for Willie Penrose, the former Labour Party junior minister from Westmeath. Penrose yesterday disputed the claim, saying that she had only worked in her office, or his office rather, for a brief period. Bernard Allen, who has retired from public life, said that he worked. she worked with him for four to six months, would have helped with parliamentary work. I am gobsmacked to hear about this. I remember her well. She came to me as a student looking for work experience. She would have worked between the constituency office and the Dáil. The last I heard from her, she had emigrated to Australia after leaving the Space Centre. Uh, says Bernard Allen speaking to the Sunday Times this morning. Uh, like I said, pretty varied uh, stories on the front page this morning. Uh, joined to discuss those and more by Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at the University of Galway and by Declan Power, defence and security expert. Uh, Declan, there's lots to talk about as regards Ukraine mm-hmm. in the papers and we'll get to that in just a second. <coughs> Firstly, what do you make of that front page story that someone who is strictly speaking an Irish citizen mm-hmm. but who clearly has some Russian affinity of one sort or another would be considered to be a national security risk uh, by a NATO power? Uh, well, Australia isn't a member of NATO. It has a, oh, an pardon. association with NATO. And, uh, just to be <laughs> minor. No, no fair enough. Beg your pardon. But it's a part of the Western family of nations mm. more than ourselves. Uh, no, I think it's a very interesting story because, uh, well, for a start, it's nothing new. Those who watch this space will know uh, one thing the Russians have been doing long before the war in Ukraine was attempting to inject people into positions of influence uh, across the Western world. Mm. Uh, and indeed, to be fair, uh, this is nothing new in terms of the writing from John Mooney in the Sunday Times. He's been uh, drawing our attention to the act- actions, particularly of the Russians and Chinese with regards to theft of intellectual property and attempts to undermine our economic security. So uh, where this should be of particular relevance and interest to us is somebody who 
a legitimately acquired Irish citizenship and then got a, a good a- education and a good platform uh, to start a professional career, it became, uh, was recruited by the Russians uh, at some point. And they had, to, to use some of the vernacular of the, the intelligence trade, they had built their legend here. Now, you may remember, and your listeners may remember, there was a, a guy called Sergei Kursikov, I think was his name. He he turned out to, he was a student in Trinity, graduated from there. He claimed to be a Brazilian named Victor Mueller. Uh, and he was uncovered by German intelligence when he attempted to uh, take up a post with uh, within the European Union. I forget. I think it was within the European Union court system. Okay. And what's going on there is the Russians target different uh, ethnic Russians, if they can, people who speak the language, mm. who might have some affinity depending on their family background, and but who outwardly have a very Western shield, if you like, Western yes. presentation. Mm. And this lady, uh, when she went to Australia, I'd say it was with particular intent. And this is why the ASIO, the Australian Security Intelligence Organization, their version of MI5, picked her up. Her relationship that uh, with um, diplomatic cover members of the Russian intelligence community. So those would be people situated within the embassy who will be observed and surveilled but can't be touched as such. Yeah. And part of their job is to build uh, networks within the, the countries that they're working in. And she was obviously uh, observed to be part mm. of that network. Okay. And the issue is, it's not always about, are they spying? Like we can kind of laugh up our sleeves and say, what would you have to learn in Doyle Aaron? Mm. It's not always about um, stealing information. It's sometimes about the long term investment, about getting a, a person to be an agent of influence. Uh, if we want to understand that, think of Dennis Donaldson. Uh, within Sinn Féin, okay. who paid for his uh, activities with his life. Yeah. He was cultivated because he was able to influence the direction of Sinn Féin. Mm. So you think about it from so the it Russians wasn't necessarily what he learned in any one locale yeah. so much as the fact that it buffered up his CV that he would then be in positions of trust further down the line. Precisely. And this is a version of that on a grand scale that the Russians are doing. So how does this relate to us in Ireland? Well, for a start, this lady, if she's going to be deported back here, which is probably likely she's an Irish citizen, we're looking a little bit uh, like a variation of the theme with the Lisa Smith case. Uh, I would say she'd probably be interviewed by the Garda. She probably should go onto a watch list of something like that. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that I think she can be necessarily charged with. But then as a state and a society, we need to think, how vulnerable are we to being used as a Trojan horse and how do we combat that? Well, this is what I wanted to ask you because with the, the common theme with this lady and with the other um, former student that you just mentioned there by name a second ago is that they both appeared then to come on the radar of other countries but not of us directly. And you could argue that that is because in each instance they only became a perceived security threat or something that might undermine the national order after they had left Ireland or for a little later in their lives. But you could also argue that maybe there was a threat for the time that they were in Ireland and it wasn't picked up. Well, uh, she commenced a relationship with the Russians in Ireland. Uh, that is, so is that an intelligence failure on our part then? Uh, it is, yes. Um, and the question is, uh, she probably wasn't engaged in anything that was a direct threat to us. But we can't, uh, you know, we're plugged into the, the Western world and we can't afford to be seen as a, a weak link in that particular area. We spend a lot of time talking about heavy edged military security um, in recent times since the war in Ukraine but really with regards to Ireland it's the softer, uh, less observable things we need to be paying more attention to. So we need to be aware that we are vulnerable and that our vulnerabilities can impact on the security of our friends and neighbours. Mm. And how do we deal with that? I would say it starts with we have the capacity and the skill set 
within our public service, within particularly J2 of the Defence Forces, Garda Security and Intelligence as well. But we lack the... Um, the gravity that needs to be given to it within our policy-making circles. I uh, was told recently uh, about a senior politician who, when it was being discussed about the lack of a development of the recently created National Security Analysis Centre, which was supposed to be a whole-of-government approach to analysing threat yeah. and getting out in front of it, mm. not creating a, a separate intelligence agency, but yeah. but a coordinating I function. I remember the press conference where it was supposed uh, to be unveiled. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. and they haven't produced a white paper. Their director, an assistant secretary general, was diverted to other tasks during COVID. And a senior politician uh, in, a, in a conversation said, well, we don't really need a CIA or a Mossad. I don't think that's suitable for Ireland. Nobody's talking about that. What we need is a, a joined up uh, whole of government approach to mm. viewing threat, analysing it and uh, directing uh, our national taskings accordingly. OK, um, Larry Donnelly of the University of Galway. Um, one thing that that strikes me about all of this is that um, if Miss Solagob is an Irish citizen, um, that there is going to be this situation where we're sort of basically compelled to receive her back that if there's no other country that she's allowed to go to and if she's been um, been expelled from Australia she's going to have to come here which does create something of a policy headache then if it turns out that she became a Russian asset while she was an Irish citizen on Irish soil. It certainly does, yeah, and I, I think that, uh, you know, I'll defer to Declan's expertise on this one, but certainly uh, she needs to be put on a watch list. She needs to be interviewed by the Gadi. Uh, you know, she needs to, and I needs to be kept out on her. And I think Declan's points about uh, these this relationship developing here and the need for uh, resources, I think, really, to combat this in future uh, is definitely, it needs to be a priority. The one thing I would venture uh, is that I would suspect uh, that the Chinese are also at this and that they are probably doing it uh, a lot better uh, than the Russians are. Uh, so, uh, again, this is a space that I think needs to be watched. Uh, there, there's a thought. Uh, we'll park the conversation for now. Uh, as I said, we would get to some of the coverage of Ukraine, of course, last Friday being the uh, the first anniversary of uh, Russia's invasion and, and the ongoing hostilities that have survived ever since. Um, there's a couple of bits and pieces across the papers. But maybe it's better just to take a, a broader view of, of where we are, Declan, and, and given your expertise, we'll start with yourself. Um, everyone thought um, 52 weeks ago that this would be a pretty quick operation on Russia's part that you just look at the, the size of the military power that they had, the, the sheer territory that they could afford to harvest resources from, the amount of resources that they'd stockpiled at the Ukrainian border. We all thought this would be quite quick mm, and it hasn't it. been. Why uh, not? Yeah, I thought, uh, and I think a lot of people uh, who, who focus on these things thought that what would happen is we'd be looking at an insurgency war and uh, a government in exile of Ukraine and the West helping that uh, uh, insurgency survive mm. uh, to an extent. A bit like what happened in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Uh, the fact that Ukraine survived is testimony, I think, to two specific things that we didn't fully get here in the West. Um, they were at war since 2014 with Russia. So uh, they had been learning. They had been receiving assistance from uh, NATO in terms of doctrine. So they were shifting out of the old Soviet era mindset about how to conduct conventional warfare. So it meant that they were quite prepared and agile. The Russians, being a totalitarian state, uh, gathered intelligence in, in the preliminary uh, period before invasion, but they didn't interpret it. They, the politics mean that you end up letting the intelligence tell your boss what he wants to hear, and we all know what Putin wanted to hear. So how did that reflect in the early stage of the invasion? It meant that the Russians sent in forces that had large components of paramilitary public order 
personnel rather than uh, mobile infantry. And they were expecting to have to deal with maybe recalcitrant, disobedient members of the public and put down kind of popular uprising type activities in uh, urban areas uh, or rural areas because they were going to bypass the urban areas. Mm. And they thought that people would accept it as a fait accompli. And they didn't expect to meet well-organised defence from the Ukrainian military and a, a properly coordinated command and control that was quite mobile and mm. agile. Sorry to interrupt you mid-flow there, but when you say fait accompli, does that, to some degree, do you mean also that not alone did they expect a level of organisation for defence, but that also that they thought the defence would just be less strong-minded, that they genuinely thought in their own minds there'd be a certain amount of chain of dominoes here, that, no, you, well, that you, Ukraine is a bit of us and that they'll just fold over and let us go. Yeah, you touch on something interesting there. Exactly what you said, but let me add to that, that they already had created a proxy local governments. They had uh, picked out, they had contacted uh, uh, collaborators. They had quizlings dotted around uh, ready to fit into a new administration mm. that they thought would uh, emerge very straightforwardly and that wouldn't take much effort. Um, so it shows you that from Ukraine's point of view, they were well prepared for the enemy without and the enemy within. But as we move forward, one of the other interesting things too was a lot of the think tanks that focus on security in that region were expecting the Ukrainians still to fold, that they wouldn't have the defence in depth, as it's called, to uh, stave off the the Russian onslaught. But the Russians defeated themselves in that particular area because they were so cumbersome Mm. and so slow. When we talk about this, though, we need to look at it in a slightly broader perspective as well, because Western expectations were based on what was happening, not just in Ukraine. Ukraine had been undermined when they swung towards the West, when they, uh, the ordinary people of Ukraine got annoyed at uh, Russian meddling in their affairs when they wanted to move towards a, a relationship with the European Union. And then they managed to topple their government at the time. There was a popular uprising. Mm. But also... Georgia had been subject to Russian meddling in South Ossetia. Uh, uh, Kazakhstan had similar incursions and aggressions. And indeed Moldova, which we forget about, uh, and Transnistria, which is occupied by Russian forces as we speak. So this follows a pattern. The old trope, which initially when uh, the discussions about NATO uh, expansion were happening some years ago, I was minded to think, is this a good idea? But I was forgetting a key point that we have to bear in mind when Mm. we interpret this conflict. And that is agency of small states to take steps that they want to take. And all of these small states, including the Baltics that are now in NATO and the EU, as soon as they got the Russian yoke off their shoulders, they moved, they wanted to move towards the Mm. West. And as soon as they, instead of trying to maybe woo them or to engage in some sort of diplomacy, the Russians did what they always do. They started to bully them and undermine them and aggress against them. And the countries I've mentioned there have one thing in common that are all still being aggressed and occupied. Uh, Transnistria, Moldova, Mm, uh, Georgia and Kazakhstan. They weren't members of any collective defence community. Okay. So basically, to a degree, and we'll move on to Larry just after this, that effectively sometimes we kind of see it in the abstract, we kind of see yeah. it as a giant chessboard. We see, well, is, is it good for a big Western military alliance to start taking on people at Russia's doorstep? And you overlook the fact that, well, these are individual countries that have their own agency, their own right to decide their own affairs. And if they decide they want in, and it's I, not yeah. up to us to second and guess think, them. Yes, exactly. And I don't think the West was fully prepared for that. I think that we, like the talks about Ukraine joining NATO were dragging on. It was, you know, NATO wasn't in a rush to take them in. Yeah. So maybe, you know, we weren't really paying, we weren't showing due respect for their agency 
either in the West. Mm. Uh, just before we go to an ad break, um, because um, I, there's a couple of other things that I do want to get in, but um, Larry, I know that you were particularly keen to talk about some of the newspaper coverage about the events in OMA this week and the shooting of a PSNI uh, officer who was in, the, in a pretty grave condition and the, the rather sickening thought that he was shot four times in front of his child while he was putting footballs into the, the boot of his car. Uh, there are a couple of bits of coverage dotted around the papers, but you had some thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it's just absolutely harrowing uh, when you see the details in front of his young child. Uh, it's just absolutely horrific. Uh, and I think a lot of us find it tough to get to grips with the fact that there are still people out there uh, who are of this mindset, who are prepared to do uh, things like this 25 years on uh, from the Good Friday Agreement, that that movement, however small, uh, still exists. So it's just an appalling, appalling tragedy uh, at every level. I mean, I, I, it looks like he's going to survive. Etc. But it's an awful, awful uh, event that brings us back, I suppose, uh, to the bad old days. Uh, I do think, uh, in the aftermath, I think the reaction of political people across the across the aisle, across the spectrum, uh, has been very good, very strong. I thought Mary Lou McDonald was excellent uh, in how she addressed it. Uh, so, you know, obviously thoughts and prayers with uh, this individual's the, the, the policeman's family, etc. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's just a, an awful reminder uh, of an era and a day that we thought was past. And we obviously will still be there. We'll be talking. In a bit more detail uh, later in the programme from uh, Brussels and Westminster about the prospect of there being anything that gets day-to-day politics in Northern Ireland back up and running but would you have some concerns that with there being this increasingly uh, and I I want to be careful here because I don't want to associate one as being responsible for the other but that um, dissident republicanism may be emboldened by the increasing hardline voices that we hear from unionism and loyalism about the, the state of their affairs? I hate to say it, but yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, among that that hardcore, I think that there is the potential for that. And that's why I think uh, vigilance and, you know, is, is absolutely imperative. There is, uh, predictably enough, a fair amount across today's papers about the, the fate of the Social Democrats, who surprised us all, I think, a, a little bit this week by announcing the departure of their co-leaders, Catherine Murphy and Roisin Shortall. Um, three of the four remaining TDs still dwelling on whether they'd like to contest the, the um, leadership the deadline is is Wednesday. Um, your reflections on stuff you've seen in the paper and, and where the party goes from here? Well, well, first, I mean, I, I have to say, I think all of us were taken aback by the announcement. It really came quite abruptly from Catherine, Mur- Catherine Murphy and Roisin Shorthall. And, and political reporters said, say that there's no backstory here. There's nothing more than meets the eye. But still, uh, it was quite an abrupt departure. And I think that's noteworthy. Uh, in terms of the battle to succeed uh, them, uh, I think Holly Cairns has to be the red-hot favorite. Uh, Gary Gannon was talking to Claire Byrne the other day. He wouldn't nail his colors to the mask, but I think he's pretty clearly uh, in Holly Cairns' corner. Mm. Uh, and she has all of a, a lot of very, very good political qualities. What, what are her traits, or what, what could she bring to it that the others can't? Uh, I think she's an exceptional media performer. I think that that's one of the, the, the core uh, points. I mean, she's really made a very, very strong mark and a strong impression. Uh, again, as a first-time TD elected in 2020 from a rural constituency, yet she's virtually, uh, at least in political circles anyway, she's virtually become uh, a household name. She's somebody that people know, and she's been very, very effective, I think, and articulate uh, on a number of issues, uh, mother and baby homes being one of those. Mm. Uh, I think that she is the strongest candidate they can have, and at the end of the day, uh, this becomes about, you know, the face on the posters, et cetera, et cetera, and I think she, did, you know, she ticks uh, an awful lot of boxes as a capable politician. Uh, the other question I think has been raised is that uh, because of at least perceived personality conflicts, uh, there was never going to be a merger uh, between Labour and the SOC Dems with Catherine Murphy and Roisin Shorthall at mm. the top. The question now becomes, uh, is that door uh, maybe slightly uh, more open than it might have been beforehand? And, and let's be blunt, while bo- 
both parties do protest about their individual identities, uh, it's absolute madness uh, that they are two separate entities when ideologically they're absolutely indistinguishable. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of their own political self-interest and political survival, perhaps, uh, it only makes sense for them to merge. Uh, so watch that space as well. You can understand, Declan, why, I should say, um, we, we've invited Holly Cairns, Jennifer Whitmore and Keen O'Callaghan, all of the three undeclared TDs, uh, if any of them wanted to join us in the programme today with any news as to whether they were going to rule themselves in or out. All of them, understandably, are still keeping their cards close to their chest and trying to sound out whether they should contest the office or not. You can understand some of their reluctance because if this is news that was apparently only given to them last Tuesday, they've got a couple of days to decide whether they want to be in or not. You're facing down the barrel of local elections in a little over 12 months and a general election within two. You could end up leading the party into government, prospectively, depending on how they go, or you could end up leaving the party into oblivion, depending on how the next two elections go as well. You can understand why they'd be a little bit sensitive about whether they're going to dip their toes in or not. Well, yes, it's a sudden thing, it appears. Although I wonder maybe how sudden. But then this is Ireland. It's very hard to keep a secret. So, <laughs> well, yeah. uh, um, But I, I think if I was uh, looking at it from their perspective uh, and I had a... You know, felt I had something to offer I would take the ball and run with it because Larry has made a few points there that I think are quite interesting I think this, the SOC Dems have probably been more useful in their contributions uh, and been seen as a credible working uh, practical version of the left in Ireland Labour are in danger of disappearing up their own fundament at the minute uh, like Eon O'Reardon's uh, issue about single sex schools and I'm surprised uh, well, <laughs> as, was, as was proven the other day by some academic research that the single sex schools don't oh, no. give any better academic uh, outcomes are all over well, the place on on that It's oh, not purely right. about academics. We live in a democracy. If parents want to send their kids to a... Or a, or a young man or, or an adolescent male or female wants to go to a single-sex school, yeah, fine, let them. Give them the opportunity okay, if they right. want. Uh, okay. But this is, what I'm saying is, it's a side issue. And I think the SOC Dems have been more active talking about things that people will relate to. And I, I also agree with Larry's point that in the long term, the Labour and the SOC Dems have to merge, but they need they need to be able to present a face that's relevant, that's pragmatic and, and practical. Holly Cairns, she has, um, did I say her name right? Yes. Yep, yeah. um, she has, I think, had a very good track record uh, in recent times. Uh, I think also the fact that she's more youthful, uh, she's shown a kind of an agility as well that I think is required. And uh, if I was her, yeah, I think she should just take, take the bull by the horns mm. and go for it. I think on, on the prospect of a, a Labour Sock Dems potential merger, and I know the supporters of both parties will already have their eyes glazing over wondering why are we talking about this again? But I think objectively those of us outside their, their two foes kind of wonder about the rationale of there being separate ones. Mm. I suspect, Larry, that there are quite a few supporters or indeed members of Labour who would like to see the Sock Dems almost come home if you like, that they sort of see them as being this kind of outpost and they'd like to have them back in the big family and have a single single vehicle just purely for electoral purposes and nothing else. I think within the Sock Dems, though, there's people who are conflicted because there are those who want Labour politics without the baggage of Labour, which then means that joining up with Labour would be a bit of an issue. Uh, and then there are those who just want the cause of social democracy and will use whatever vehicle they think is the best way to get there. And, and it's kind of hard to know then how many of the Sock Dems' own members 
would consider Labour to be a prospective home or anyone that they could ever do business with. Yeah, I, I suppose that that's an interesting point. And, you know, and, and when I say they merge, I, don't, I didn't say it wouldn't be without difficulty mm. or complexity. Um, that's for sure. But I think that those, those concerns notwithstanding, uh, you have to look at, you know, look at the poll numbers. I mean, the, the, both, both parties are relatively small. Yeah, both, they're both in 4% today in the latest yeah, I mean, business post. It, yeah. You know, given, you know, in notwithstanding the, the points you've made, given the political realities and at the end of the day politics is a numbers game uh, the numbers only go in one direction and I'm sure that there are very many committed uh, you know elected representatives in within both parties but at the end of the day the objective for a politician is to keep uh, her or his seat uh, and if this would uh, you know I suppose uniting that that certain cohort on that left that certain type uh, of left and I would submit to you that there's much more uh, that brand of left left-wing politics there's much more that unites labor in the South and divides them culturally or otherwise, mm. uh, I think when politicians have to make a decision about the numbers, uh, they'll vote with their feet. Yeah, I would think that the, uh, the, the it is a common trait of, of Irish politics that parties have uh, often almost uh, identical outlooks as to what's coming up in the future, but uh, they can't agree on what went on in the past and sometimes that's as much <laughs> of a barrier as anything. Uh, one texter, the Sock Dems have absolutely no base says this texter and are purely reliant on Sinn Féin transfers so they're on very shaky ground uh, they won't go in with Labour because they're a damaged brand and also if they do go into coalition with any party as a junior they will be wiped out AIM2 are actually the party to watch out for in growth says that texter overlooking the fact that presumably if AIM2 were to become a junior partner in the coalition they too would be wiped out uh, somebody else says uh, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, the Greens and, so- and the Sinn Féin are the only parties of interest all others are no use says Geraldine all right, three and a half party system it is. Um, there is uh, a story that you that caught your eye, Declan, given your security background. Page six of the Sunday Independent. Um, the guard of fitness test uh, mm-hmm. that the failure rates are reaching new heights. Tell us more. Yeah, so uh, Maeve Sheehan, I think, had the piece and uh, she goes into some uh, useful detail as well about the construction of the test. So, uh, yeah, guard, they are struggling. I don't think it's purely to do with fitness also. I think it's to do with maybe paying conditions uh, within the guard as well. And that um, you know, young, well-educated Irish people have a lot of alternatives. But I do think, yeah, and, and May's story draws attention to this, that it's become a hell of a lot more complex if you want to join and guard the Shiakana. Than it, used just, than it used to be. So the Herself. fitness test involves uh, not just a test of your fitness. Okay, there's the famous bleep test and we used to do that in the army. You're running between yeah. two points and the bleeps get closer or uh, wider, which is a closer and get, closer get and you close start together, faster yeah. and faster. Mm. But then they have these other kind of skills-based physical tests. Uh, one that I find particularly amusing the, to test your ability to struggle with an assailant. So it's some sort of a machine that uh, uh, adjusts and increases the strength. Now my... <laughs> sorry, so, sorry, trainee guard <laughs> and Templemore are made to basically fight robots to see how they can shake them off well I don't think it's not down. even trainee guards apparently it's um, you know prospective trainee guards so uh, you have to pass these various physical competency tests to be considered for a place in hmm. the guard of the college uh, and this is where I think we're parting uh, ways with reality if somebody has a good educational foundation and a good physical fitness foundation then you know they should be assessed on that basis there should be maybe robust dynamic interviews this obsession with a uh, aptitude tests that has uh, crept into the public service in general I know different departments in the civil service that place a lot of stock on them but the Gardaí Shikana have been using them for over 20 years 
I don't think it was a step in the right direction because people who are from well enough to do backgrounds can go to modern grind schools and prepare for them. Mm. And there is a, there's a technique to prepare for them. So what are you testing then? Mm. You're just testing somebody who has the, the family money to go and prepare mm. for it and whatever else. But you, you can't do that though in a, in a guard aptitude test if you're going to be made to fight against some sort of creature that's trying to pin you down because you can't go and get grinds in Krav Maga to try and shake off a robot before you go to Temple Moor. You can't. No, but the, the, the well-intentioned the well, uh, candidate can have taken a course in Krav Maga they can have prepared themselves but they're going to be they're going to be in the minority the reality is we need a more general look at this when I went into the army uh, the, uh, when I was in the military college mm. the particular cadet class I was in was full of people who were very physically fit who had very good sporting backgrounds who had uh, pretty good uh, leaving certs and a lot of whom had a year or two in college mm. and one or two who had degrees and um, were we prepared to do what was known as exercise scratch uh, when we joined the the army, which is called battle skills under pressure circuit, which is a mixture of physical and mental tests? No, we weren't. It took us a good eight months to be prepared for that. So what I'm saying is, the lesson here is, the guards take in people who have good physical and men- mental material and then they train them accordingly. And you uh, don't need to be able to struggle with an assailant. You need to have a good standard of fitness and you can be trained to do that. Larry? Keep it simple. I, I just want to make one very simple point. Okay. Uh, Have I don't you ever fought off a robot <laughs> <laughs> in Tipperary or anywhere else? Okay. I, I'm afraid the robot would crush me. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but uh, it, just one simple point is I, I really kind of struggle to see actually the point of a fitness test if it's not going to be done on an ongoing basis. That is, if at one point in time you need to be fit, but then three years down the road, you, there's no such requirement. Mm. To me, it sort me as absolutely it's sort of the, It's the driving test logic that like, yeah. you have all your, your, your habits, uh, you haven't developed all the bad habits when you take your driving test. Then over decades of not being scrutinised, you develop terrible habits. You don't indicate coming off roundabouts or that you coast between gears, but no one's ever sitting and, over your shoulder to make and, sure you're and, still doing it. And like all of us, myself included, uh, the years sometimes are not kind in terms of weight. So let's just be honest about it. You know, and I, to me, it just doesn't seem to be uh, all that worthwhile if it's not going to be on an ongoing basis. Is there not some element though, Declan, of policing, particularly frontline, that does require you to be at least prepared for a physical scuffle? Oh, absolutely, kind of physical absolutely. But then is, th- is that not the sort of thing that ought to be part of the screening process then for getting entry into the force? Or do you just do it somewhere else down the line? No, well, hold on a second. First of all, Larry's point is 100% right. Whatever is done, it has to be sustained. And there should be fitness tests every year, appropriate to the age group and to the nature of the work. That's a given. But and I'm not I'm not saying that we, we diminish this, but I'm saying that I think we've got it at the wrong end. If people have the right raw material, then they get trained. So a person might never have actually been in a scuffle, but um, you can tell fairly quickly if they've got the basic physical so fitness then to be trained appropriately. We're expecting them to be the, fi- the finished article before they get into exactly. college. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. We're looking for too much too soon and then we're, we're discounting. And the other side to it is a lot of people that are very suitable are voting with their feet. They're saying, I'm not going to bother my ass uh, preparing for aptitude tests and for uh, these, you know, I'm fit. I'm playing maybe a, a decent club mm. football. Uh, I've got a degree in whatever. And uh, that's what we should be looking at. Yeah. And we also, so we should be paying more attention to the individual. So the interview process should be where we're focused on if they've got the raw material. All right. Uh, next time you're pulled over then by someone who looks like they're fresh out of Temple Moor, just remember they have fought off a robot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thought for the future. Uh, we're going to be checking in with Brussels about the European view on the ongoing uh, UK protocol talks and we're going to be going through more of what's in the papers with Larry and Declan when we're back after this.
Just coming up to a quarter to 12 this Sunday morning, Gavin Riley with you on the record till one o'clock uh, on News Talk 53106 for your texts on the record NT. Our hashtag on Twitter. Still joined in studio by Larry Donnelly and Declan Power reviewing the stories, making the papers this Sunday morning. Also now joined uh, by Chief Brussels Correspondent and host of the EU Confidential Podcast with Politico, uh, Suzanne Lynch. Um, Suzanne, thanks for talking to us. We want to, to get up to speed with what exactly is going on with this ongoing perspective deal between the UK and the European Union when it comes to the North the Ireland Protocol and everything else that's tied up with it. Um, to your mind, where are we this Sunday morning? Is the deal done? Is it nearly done? Are the talks ongoing or finished or, or where are we at right now? Well, look, this Sunday morning, the big question is where these talks are going. Uh, the situation is that the EU, the 27 member states, their ambassadors are effectively on standby for a call to have a meeting if needed to sign off on any deal that may be agreed. Um Mara Sestovic, the European Commission Vice President, who's been running this uh, from the European Commission side, as uh, he's been in touch with his counterparts in London, and there, there has also been a lot of uh, discussion at technical level. Um, but the, the feeling would be that if a deal has to be done, these ambassadors would have to be called to sign off on something, and potentially that European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, would perhaps travel to London for some kind of a, a handshake, some kind of a meeting with Rishi Sunak, but Still very unclear if we're at that stage yet. Wouldn't the very fact that they'd have to get together, wouldn't that imply that there would be some final holdout issue which is of such gravity that it would need the likes of the Prime Minister and the Commission President to get involved in? Because surely at this point it's only the big principles that remain and they're the sort of things that the negotiators themselves can't sign off on. Yeah, I think um, I think the issue, I think it would be more symbolic than anything else if Ursula von der Leyen was to meet Rishi Sunak. Because I, I think if there really was a question of a, some kind of a rewrite or, or new ideas being introduced at this stage, that would need sign-off from not just the Commission, but the national capitals, where you know foreign ministers of France and Germany or even prime ministers would need to get involved. I think the fact that they have not been involved and it hasn't got to that level is a good sign that all countries are happy that the Commission is dealing with this, that it's kind of got that mandate. And last week, or about nine days ago now, Sefcovic met all the EU ambassadors, and this was the kind of custom, you know, tap their, their views and, and kind of say, look, are you guys ready to sign off with this if needed? And, and the answer was pretty much yes. Uh, so at this stage, I don't think there's any chance that something so big that this would be reopened and that you would have Berlin and Paris getting involved is going to happen. If it does, and if that's what Rishi Sunak is asking for, I, then we're, we're into a whole different conversation. And there's, you know, there's, there's no way that a deal would be done on those bases. So I think the very fact that a deal is this close means uh, that the EU is happy that changes have been made, yes, but there are only changes that are kind of additional or, or, or tweaks to what has already been agreed and they're prepared to go that far. Okay. Uh, we'll be talking to George Parker from the Financial Times about the latest in London just after 12 o'clock. But from the Brussels perspective, Suzanne, what is in it for the European Commission to go back to the well and to try and have another deal attached to a previous deal, which itself was a protocol to a previous deal? Because one would have thought, if Brussels was happy enough with what was agreed a couple of Christmases ago, that they wouldn't feel all that invested about going back to the drawing board now. So what's in it for them? Well, I think they feel they want to close this out. And uh, the fact that this is still ongoing, uh, they feel like they can't move on with their relations with the UK. Uh, And, you know... We're, we've got a stalemate at the moment. Things have been held up. Uh, Britain's involvement in the research programme, Horizon Europe, uh, has been effectively put on hold because of this Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, I mean, that's a bigger problem for the UK than it is for the EU, but the EU still is invested in that programme too. Um, for example, and that's one example. 
you know, from the from the EU's perspective, uh, yes, they have gone as far as they are go, they would go. But as I said, there is room for you know a little bit of tweaking, a few changes. The issue uh, is that they want to get this done. They want to conclude these negotiations. They want to move on. There are some areas of interaction, of course, between the EU and the UK, and these are being held up because of this issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol. I'm thinking, for example, of Britain's involvement in the Horizon Europe Research Programme. Uh, so, you know, there's a sense that people, people have moved on, they want this mm. to move on, they're prepared to give some ground, some tweaks, some slight changes, some fudging that will allow Richard Sunak. These, these people here are politicians, they know that um, he is facing these political pressures at home and that I think they're willing to go as far as they can. And it's going to be a, a, a question a lot on presentation, what they can just show here that both sides can kind of claim victory. And I think both sides realise that. So there is an important reminder there that although we are talking a lot about Northern Ireland and what will be enough to get the DUP back on board, there is other stuff on the table other than the the functioning of the Assembly that Brussels is keen to, to get over and that this is the way to do it. Yes, exactly. I mean, there's so much going on in terms of Ukraine, um, in terms of defence policy and security. Like, don't forget Britain is a member of NATO. NATO is based here in Brussels and is a hugely important member there. So I think there's a sense that people want to actually move on. There's yet another new Prime Minister uh, they're prepared to work with Rishi Sunak, and they're going to be meeting, for example, in the G7 in May. Uh, and that's, you know, it's time that this issue was put to bed. They're prepared to give them that leeway to do so uh, without making substantial changes to the protocol. That's what it comes down to. But really, Gavin, it is a question for Rishi Sunak now, really, not the EU. The EU is ready, and it's a question if Rishi Sunak is prepared to face up, face down the people in his party who are resistant to this and get the DUP on board. Right, uh, we'll leave it there. Suzanne Lynch, Chief Brussels Correspondent with Politico EU. Uh, Suzanne, thanks very much for joining us uh, this morning on the record. Um, Larry, the one thing that strikes me about that is that it, it is worth bearing in mind that we we have seen a lot of this as will all of this be enough to get the DUP back on board? You're kind of forgetting that there is this whole separate parallel agenda that Brussels wants to get on with as well. Yeah, I suppose it's really interesting to get Suzanne's perspective. I, I suppose it's only natural the way we see things, but there obviously is a lot more uh, on the table from a European point of view. Um, I suppose just to, to, to come back to it, um, you know, we're going to see this week what Richie Sunak is made of. You know, that's the, mm. that's the bottom line and whether he has the, uh, the guts to, to, to face down uh, some of the elements uh, within his own party and indeed uh, in the DUP. So it's going to be very, very interesting to watch. Yeah, as I said, we'll talk to George Parker from the Financial Times after 12 o'clock to get the Westminster view on all of that. Um, Declan, from the security perspective, I suppose it is worth bearing in mind that there has been certain cooperation that appears to have been basically in abeyance um, for the last couple of years that it was expected that with the, the nature of the Brexit deal that certain security functions would continue to operate as they were but that everything's kind of been on the slide because there's been this big elephant in the room that they're now trying to gently hurt away. Yeah, it's been a problem uh, you know, at kind of mid-level operational levels within within Europe about, we'll say, uh, uh, agreements that no longer exist that Britain isn't party to and th- th- these things can be sorted out but this is the the, the, the key logjam if you like and they need to get that sorted out because of Britain being such a big security provider within Europe and that doesn't often get talked about it took the Ukraine the Ukrainian war for us to realise that but also Britain is a major provider of intelligence to European Union networks uh, mm. law enforcement wise as well as military wise and and they need to fashion out the highways that have been blocked so that that can continue to happen. Okay. 
Fascinating stuff. Uh, there is one piece on the bottom of page three of the Business Post that I know both of you were wildly keen to discuss, which is uh, one of the findings from this week's uh, Red Sea opinion poll, which is that people would be more likely to vote for Bertie Ahern in a presidential election than Jerry Adams, but most don't want either of them in the role. Uh, the Red Sea poll asked respondents who they would vote for in a two-way runoff for the presidential election. Ahern won 21% of the hypothetical vote, hardly a ringing endorsement. Jerry Adams would win 19% in those circumstances 59% said that given an option between just the two men they would vote for neither Larry Donnelly. Uh, unfortunately, an awful lot of cold water uh, water poured on uh, a fantasy for us political junkies because, let's face it, uh, an Ahern-Adams matchup mm. would be absolutely <coughs> box office yeah. stuff. Yeah, uh, but those numbers uh, certainly reflect, uh, you know, the, 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 I suppose the, the standing in the polls and I think uh, even Birdie's uh, re-emergence into public life, uh, the vitriol with which that was greeted uh, on social media and elsewhere, I think, uh, you know, is indicative to some extent, sadly, of of how how much uh, you know some some people in, in Ireland still uh, you know ha- hold him responsible for an awful lot of things. Um, look, I think Bertie is enjoying uh, floating the prospect, uh, re- refusing to rule himself out. Uh, but frankly, I would be surprised if either he or Adams uh, made a bid for the presidency. Uh, what is fascinating about the breakdown in this, Declan, is that um, they've broken down respondents by party political preference as well. Fifty-seven uh, percent of Fianna Fáil voters said that they would vote for Bertie Ahern in those circumstances. 40% said they would back neither. Only 3% said they would vote for Jerry Adams. I want to meet a Fianna Fáil voter who would prefer Jerry Adams over Bertie Hearn in the presidential election, I must say. Uh, Jerry Adams uh, would win 42% of Sinn Féin votes. 50% of Sinn Féin voters said they would rather vote for neither. That's quite striking to me. I think um, that reflects maybe a, a growing level of awareness in Sinn Féin that the past needs to be put well behind them. The whiff of cordite would still attach to Jerry Adams and they very much want to put that away and you know uh, Larry uh, uh, talked about how well Mary Lou performed on the radio this week and I was equally as impressed and I think that's really the way Sinn Féin want to be going. Uh, so a run for the park with Jerry, uh, while it would be hugely entertaining I think uh, um, Bertie would be the winner in terms of, of how he would deal with it because he can nail his colours to the peace process mast and whatever else can be said, he was a key player in bringing it over the line. Whereas Jerry can say the same thing but he's always going to have it levelled against him but you were part of the problem that created mm. him in the first place yeah. and Sinn Féin wanted to get away from that. An interesting debate uh, wouldn't it Larry between republicanism with a small or and republicanism with a capital or? As I said it would be absolutely mm. fascinating to watch. Uh, do you think that though is there a certain amount of um, sort of political nerdery that we're already sort of projecting two and a half years out we're sort of pr- surmising who the prospective candidates would be in trying to create a celebrity deathmatch between the two of them rather than actually allowing the process to run its course and for other candidates to show up. Absolutely. I mean, I think there is definitely a showbiz uh, element to to all of it. But, uh, you know, again, the presidential elections are elections like no other. And I think uh, all of us who like politics are looking forward to it already. Uh, they tend also to be pretty nasty. So mm-hmm. any baggage that either of the two candidates or anyone else would have would certainly uh, get an airing. Uh, should mention, of course, Bertie Ahern's uh, podcast with News Talk, as I remember it, Bertie Ahern and the Good Friday agreement telling the story of the agreement as told by those who negotiated it first time that many of those have reunited to reflect on their negotiations uh, that's available on Apple Podcasts Spotify and Google Podcasts and through the Go Loud app uh, oh, completely out of time Declan Power Defence and Security Expert Larry Donnelly of University of Galway thank you both very much for joining me this morning on The Record On The Record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11 Brought to you by PwC Great minds think unalike 
different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.